The topic of today's episode is Can Congress Budget? My guest is Dr. Alan Schick. He is Professor Emeritus at the School of Public Policy at the University of Maryland. He previously has held positions at the Congressional Research Service, the Urban Institute, the Brookings Institution, and the American Enterprise Institute. Dr. Schick published three volumes with AEI Press, which you can download and read, and he's written many other books with distinguished presses. His books include Congress and Money, Spending, Taxing, and Budgeting, Making Economic Policy in Congress, The Capacity to Budget, and Federal Budget, Politics, Policy, and Process. Dr. Schick is the Dean of Budget Policy, and we are very fortunate to have him on the program. Welcome to the Understanding Congress podcast. Thank you. Good to be here. Let me start with a really rudimentary question. What is a budget? Well, a budget begins in the United States, not in necessarily in all other countries, as a plan of revenue expenditure for a period ahead, typically one year. Congress does it, and the president does it. Each has its own budget, but they differ in one important regard. The president's budget is exceedingly detailed. It spills over thousands of pages, going through every account, uh, many programs, activities, then it is submitted to Congress. The congressional budget is really an outline that covers only a couple of pages, highly aggregated total revenues, total expenditures. And the reason why it's aggregated, it is only a framework because implementation of the congressional budget requires some additional steps, appropriations, for example, revenue legislation, sometimes what we'll get to reconciliation legislation. So this is an outline that sets in motion the processes within Congress. Great. Yes, yes. And I'm glad you highlighted the point that one should not confuse a budget for an appropriation. So that sets me up very nicely to ask you about the basics of the current congressional budget process. It was more or less created by the 1974 Congressional Budget and Empowerment Control Act. You were on Capitol Hill working at the Congressional Research Service when the law was passed. What were the main features of the act and what process did it create for budgeting? Well, the 1974 Act arose because of two confrontations, one between Congress and the president over empowerment of funds. The president, Nixon, refused to spend some of the money that Congress had appropriated. And Congress felt that it could no longer therefore rely on the president's budget process to make legislative decisions. And the second conflict was in Congress itself between the appropriation committees, which controlled a portion of the budget, and other congressional committees, which controlled what we now call mandatory expenditure, particularly entitlements. There was a buildup of tension within Congress over why the country had deficits. The appropriators blamed other committees. Other committees blamed the appropriators. Both of them blamed the revenue committees of Congress. And all this led to Congress saying, we need our own budget process. The budget process they established includes the Congressional Budget Office, which has survived and flourished, has a great deal of independence, a scorekeeping process run by the Congressional Budget Office, which measures the budgetary impact of legislation passed by Congress, or actually 
All legislation reported by House and Senate committees gets a price tag put in by the Congressional Budget Office. These features have survived quite well. In addition, Congress would pass what's called a budget resolution. Initially, the idea would Congress would pass two resolutions a year, but that proved to be unworkable. So boiled down to one budget resolution, typically in the spring, which would say these are total revenues, these are total spending, this is the total deficit, this is the total debt of the United States. Now, this is the only point in the year that Congress votes on the totals. Uh, without a budget resolution, the totals are simply the sum of all the separate actions that Congress takes during the year. I mention this because it turns out that voting expressly on the deficit or the debt is not a pleasant activity for Congress. Having a budget resolution means that your fingerprints have to be on it. In contrast to the old situation where the deficit simply happened, Congress was not responsible for it. And I mention it because Congress actually does not adopt budget resolutions in most years. The law says it should, but it's distasteful. So Congress adopts budget resolutions only in those years, like 2021, where it has an additional reason called reconciliation for adopting a budget resolution. And I I think we may discuss reconciliation a bit later in the program, but that is really the only reason why Congress has an incentive to adopt a budget resolution these days. All right. So per the law, the way it's supposed to work is the president early in the year, in the calendar year, submits the budget, his budget. Congress then does a budget resolution by April, I believe. Subsequently, the appropriations committees are supposed to move the 12 individual appropriations act. And then we can also have reconciliation. And, and, and all that is supposed to be done by September 30th. Is that correct? Well, you just described a bit of fiction because hardly any of this happens according to script. For example, here we are in early April and the president has not yet submitted a budget for the next year. He has an excuse that he's an incoming president and therefore he needs more time. But in this case, the president has done something which is quite unusual. He hasn't submitted a budget, but he's submitted pieces of budget, his economic rescue program, his infrastructure program. In other words, he's avoided doing what a budget is supposed to do, which is to show you the whole picture. Instead, he showed you particular views of it. Now, Congress passed a budget resolution, but it's interesting. The budget resolution which Congress passed this year is last year's budget resolution, not this year's. This year's budget resolution may come in the spring. Congress discovered that last year, Congress didn't adopt a budget resolution for fiscal 21. That's the current year in progress. So let's do it now. That gives us another bite of the apple called reconciliation. So Congress has changed the, flipped the the schedule. Rather than having a budget resolution after the president submits a budget, he's done it before the president submits a budget. This is not the only thing that falls apart. You mentioned the 12 appropriation bills. In most years, Congress passes the 12 appropriation bills well after the September 30th deadline. 
and it lumps them into a single measure. In just a few months ago, Congress passed, passed the fattest, the lengthiest bill in American history, weighing in at more than 2,000 statute pages, almost 6,000 bill pages, the Consolidated Appropriation Act of 2021, containing not only all 12 appropriation bills, but dozens and dozens of other measures as well. One law, many bills. Remarkable the way reality has so deeply deviated from the process that was set up in the 74 Budget Act. I do have a follow-up about the 74 Budget Act process, the way it's supposed to work. Each House of Congress has a budget committee. What are their responsibilities? And do they have real authority or power over the budget process? The budget committees control the budget resolution. And therefore, the power of the budget committees is only as powerful as the budget resolution itself. They have no other legislative jurisdiction. That is, their one job to produce a budget resolution. And that means as follows. In some years, the budget committees are out of the script. And they have no power. Congress fails to pass a budget resolution. The budget committees have no influence on what Congress does. In other years, the budget committees are the most important actors in Congress. In other words, there's no in-between situation. Either the budget committees are powerless, powerless and sidelined, that's a situation when there's no budget resolution, or alternatively, the budget committees are front center of the legislative process. That's a year when there is a budget resolution, which is the budget committees attach reconciliation to it. And in those circumstances, they are perhaps the most important committees in Congress. It's all or nothing. Either they're all powerful or the powerless. Amazing. To follow up on this habit of Congress not adopting a resolution, a kind of revenues and spending plan, if memory serves, in the last decade, I believe under the Obama administration, a deal was cut between Congress and Obama, wherein there were statutory spending caps for some number of years, which from the first blush looks like it almost sort of replaced a budget resolution in terms of having aggregate spending limitations. Is that right? You're exactly right. If you have spending caps and and spending caps were enacted in 2011, covering the decade, next decade, fiscal year 2012 to 2021. And that was another reason why many of those years, between 2012 and 2021, Congress failed to adopt the budget resolution because it already had spending caps in place. But there's a footnote to the story. In almost every year, Congress changed the caps. It's not the case that Congress enacted the caps and then complied with them. Congress adopted additional legislation which modified the spending caps. And it also found other ways of running around the spending caps, one of which had the very interesting acronym CHIMPS. And if you're familiar with changes in mandatory programs, okay, for example, something around 2014, Congress changed Medicare for about 2025. Okay, 
knowing that the changes would never occur, but it can count the savings as offsets to the caps. And every dollar of savings produced additional money to be spent within the caps. It was a lot of fun, by the way. <laughs> oh, astonishing, astonishing, the, the level of complexity. Well, so we laid out the present statutory budget process. We've also noted that the regular practice has deviated far from that. For the sake of giving listeners a little historical perspective, could you characterize the process prior to 1974? And I should say, of course, since the founding, the budget process has evolved many, 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 many times. But I got the impression from you know early 1920s to 1974, we had a budget process that was a bit more presidential or executive centric. Is that correct? That's exactly right. In 1921, Congress passed the Budget and Accounting Act, which empowered the president to send the budget to Congress each year. In effect, Congress enlisted the president to be its instrument of spending control. Congress felt we can't do it ourselves. We're too fragmented. We have too many interests. And therefore, let us rely on the president's budget to control spending. What happened, of course, is that armed with a budget process, the president became what was referred to as the imperial president. He used budget, the power to budget and other presidential powers, particularly during World War II, the Cold War, to greatly change the balance of power between the two branches. And so it wasn't simply the case that the president had a budget process. The president had a budget process which dominated what Congress did. Every step of the way, before Congress appropriated, for example, what does the president want? How much more or less are we providing than the president asked for? That kind of budgetary arithmetic gave the advantage to the president. In the aftermath of Watergate and Vietnam, in the late 60s and early 70s, Congress says, we don't want so much presidential domination. So, as we discussed earlier, it created its own budget process in 1974. What it didn't do, however, was to eliminate the president's budget process. So now we have in Washington, for the first time in American history, two power centers of budgeting. Not surprisingly, sometimes they clash. In 2021, the Democrats are trying to fuse them together. And if they succeed with the president and Congress on the same page, so to speak, this would be an awesome exercise of budgetary power. Yeah. So let's talk about today and the strange place we find ourselves in. I should say as a footnote, I recall reading perhaps something, it was something that you had written when the 74 Budget Act was adopted, making elected officials vote on aggregates was viewed as a way of creating a disincentive to run deficits and to pile up debt. But it doesn't seem to have worked quite that way because we are now staring down annual deficits of $2 trillion, national debts at $28 trillion. And we've seen the budget process, as we've you know, alluded to already, devolve into something that looks nothing like the 74 process and feels like 
annual ad hocracy, what with bills being rolled into omnibuses and reconciliation being used the calendar year after, you know, the budget year. How do we get here? Why is Congress drifted so far from the process set forth in the 74 Congressional Budget Act? It's very easy to blame Congress for the reasons you just mentioned. Congress follows the procedural advantages of the Congressional Budget Act, but really doesn't really control the aggregates, which is the purpose of the act. And there's a good reason for it, to understand the behavior of Congress. The first place you got to look is outside Congress. And the message American voters give to Congress is a kind of conflicted message. We want a smaller government and we want bigger programs. Public opinion polls have consistently shown this. Americans think that government is too large. It spends too much, it taxes too much, and it borrows too much. However, when you zero in on particular programs, whether it's defense or social programs or education or or infrastructure, Americans overwhelmingly say spend at least the same amount and often spend a lot more. So the mixed messages that Congress has received have paralyzed its capacity to do what budgeting does. It's supposed to do, rather, to reconcile the parts with the whole, the individual pieces of the budget with the totals. And as as you, in effect, have pointed out, the parts of the budget determine the totals. What Congress contemplated in 1974 was the opposite, that the totals would govern the parts. It hasn't worked out that way. Yeah. I mean, you've watched Congress a long time, and you've certainly known many members of the legislature. Does it feel to you as if, you know, the incentives to lower taxes and spend more have kind of always been there because the American people are happy to, to, to have it be that way, but that members of Congress themselves are just more inclined these days to give in to the incentives? They're less moralistic about running deficits, less willing to kind of throw themselves in front of a spending bill that's making its way out of the door if the, if the numbers don't line up? That's correct, but I would add an important footnote to it. The president. The role of the president, not the legal role, but the essential role of the president is to send Congress totals, which then can govern and discipline what Congress does. We went through a period of four years, the Trump presidency, where we had president submitting budgets with trillion-dollar deficits at a time that the economy was very strong. And what happened is we didn't pay a penalty for it. Interest rates remained very low. Inflation was low. The new incoming president has read that message. The members of Congress have read that message. We can get away, it seems, with large deficits and not pay up a, a, an economic price for it. That means we don't have interest rates are rock bottom low. Inflation is negligible. Now, whether this will be the case in the future remains to be seen. But for the president, president, Congress taking these signals, the president is submitting budgets with high deficits, and those high deficits don't exact an economic penalty. Oh, I thank you for reminding us of the interesting macroeconomic reality that we find ourselves in. I was pointing to the kind of 
moral fiber of the politicians. But let's remember inflation and interest rates, which are a significant force in affecting behavior. I recall during the Clinton administration, president had some big ideas about spending initiatives that he wanted to do. And then I believe the bond market got rattled. He, he remarked something to the effect of like, it was nice to be powerful as a president, but when he dies, he wants to come back as something even more powerful, which is the bond market. And the absence of these outside forces also makes it just easier for legislators to kind of go along with deficit spending. I guess I'd want to ask you, you know, you've, you've emphasized that the president has a role to play here. Do you think the president can still play a role in curbing deficits? Or would it be just like when he submits his budget, the document is kind of dead on arrival and Congress would just wave him off and they would ultimately dump an omnibus package on him and he'd have to choose whether to shut the government down in the name of doing the right thing or to just sign it and let it go? Well, let me make two points. One is the dead on arrival label that you gave to budget presidential budgets is really important because what it represents is a transformation of the president's budget from an authoritative statement to policy into an opening bid in a bargaining process. And this has happened with Democratic presidents, with Republican presidents. In both cases, they're saying, how do I position myself for the negotiations that will ensue with Congress and will create the real budget? That has taken a big bite out of the capacity of presidential budgeting. The second point is that we will know about how budgeting unfolds in the future if and when inflation and high interest rates return. As long as they do not return, this president, that means President Biden, is not going to lead the charge for fiscal discipline. He has no incentive to do so. If, however, we go into an inflational period, you'll notice the president pivoting very swiftly to a different kind of budgetary policy. That sounds right to me. Now, earlier we touched upon the reconciliation process. And I remember the first time that I looked at the 74 statute and looked at reconciliation, and I thought, oh, this sounds like sound accountancy. You know, you, you, you adopt a budget, but, you know, reality can change. Incoming revenues might go up or down. And so you should, you know, reconcile the budget to, a, you know, reality's developments. What we have now is very different from that. Can you describe what's, what's happened? Yeah. What happened is a, is a rule of politics. And that is you create a procedure for one purpose. It's almost certain that at some time in the future, will be transformed or hijacked for a different purpose. The original purpose of reconciliation in 1974 had nothing to do with the way reconciliation is used today. It had to do with the fact that there would be two resolutions. In between the two resolutions, Congress would pass revenue and spending measures, which may be inconsistent with the second resolution. And therefore, we want just a very limited debate, 20 hours in the Senate to reconcile what Congress just did with the final budget resolution. It turns out Congress did not adopt a second budget resolution. As I mentioned earlier, it even had difficulty adopting the first budget resolution. Why do it twice in a year when it's so hard to do it even once in a year? 
So all that survived on the ink on the page was something called reconciliation. And Congress, sensibly, actually wasn't Congress. It was the president who seized reconciliation for its own purpose. Ronald Reagan in 1981 used reconciliation for to get his agenda through Congress. The Congress is now simply taking the bare words of reconciliation, which, as we note, has a limited period of debate in the Senate, no filibuster, only 20 hours total. That enables you to accomplish what you otherwise would not be able to do. So this is, to go back to what I said earlier, another instance in American political history where a reform adopted for one purpose ultimately gets used for a totally different purpose. So this leads me to ask the question, which is the title of this episode, can Congress budget? And perhaps I should have phrased it as, can Congress budget well? The answer is yes, but only with the assistance of the president. In other words, the president has to provide a safe harbor, so to speak, for Congress in order for Congress to make tough decisions. And I mention it because Congress is is much more exposed than the president. Members of the House have two-year terms. Congress has 535 different voices in Congress, pulling in many different directions. So Congress does need the leadership of the president if it's going to have budgetary discipline. Without that leadership, Congress is not going to be front center saying, let's make all these very tough decisions, which will actually doom our re-election chances. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it looks to me that the kind of natural pluralistic forces in the country, all of which, or most of which these days, are organized or represented in Washington in one way or another, are all pushing for the thing that they want, whether it's you know, keep lower this tax or increase this spending, et cetera, et cetera. And you put that all together and you have all those forces hitting upon Congress, it would seem fairly natural for the the legislative body, which is to be representative, to respond and to give in. And that would kind of naturally, naturally lead to, to deficits. You know, there's just not a whole lot of groups in society who are regularly advocating to raise taxes and doing so with gusto. And you rightly point out that you know, the president's a unique actor. He can create, to a degree, public opinion through leadership by emphasizing certain things like, let's get our fiscal books in order. That noted, let me just ask a follow-up to help us close out the program. Listeners might be, to some degree, despairing of the state of the budget process right now. You know, Yes, we can hope for a president who will be strong in this area. What else can we do if we can't have that great man come in or great woman come in and lead from the executive office and improve our budgeting. Is there any way we can fix the 74 CBA to make it less likely to fail? There are things you can do to be more transparent, to have more objectivity, more independence. I don't think they'll add up to a fundamental change in legislative behavior. Unfortunately, my own view is that things have to be bad for budgeting to get better. In other words, you look at the situation. When will the president go to Congress and say, we have to exercise budgetary discipline? That's only whether it's the bond market or the economy as a whole seem to be providing signals that 
overspending, overborrowing, maybe under overtaxing by Congress is creating economic problems. We're not in that situation right now. Right now, we're worried about the pandemic, getting over it. If it turns out that in the period after the pandemic, that the economy is stable, the president will continue to propose significant deficits. If it turns out that, as we mentioned earlier, interest rates and deflation move in an adverse direction, you will see the president coming before Congress and saying we have to be disciplined. What the president will not do is say, I'll change, I'm changing my mind. The president will make it appear, as any president would, as a natural evolution in policy. This was appropriate in 2021. Now we're in 2022 or 2023, and we need to sing in a different choir. Dr. Alan Schick, thank you for being on the program and answering the question, can Congress budget? Thank you very much, and let's wait and see whether it can. <laughs>